is the Enter Sandman Podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome once again to the Enter Sandman Podcast. Here we are again with another journey down rock's historic past, namely the years 1970 to 1995, as we believe those are the golden age of hard rock and heavy metal. Uh, I'm Richard, I'm joined as always by Mark and Steve, and as you probably know already, Antisadman is the only podcast that meticulously, forensically picks apart every rock album, be it great or average or whatever, and through that gives it a specific score and a place in our hall of fame. The podcast is everywhere. Uh, I'm sure you'll realise that the best place to find out what we're up to, what we're about, and what we've done so far is to visit us at entersadmen.co.uk. All the info's there about everything we've reviewed and, most importantly, that amazing hall of fame. So, yes, as, I, as always, I'm joined by Mark and Steve. Hello, gents. How are you? Oh, I'm very good. Very, very good. I had a good week. Had a good week. It's been revelatory in all, all sorts of ways, not least because I discovered that um, that you, Richard, uh, are, are absolutely in love with SM by Metallica and I'm not. But um, we'll get on to We're never going to record, we're never going to review that album. So we'll never find out what we all think about it. But yeah. So revelations all round. Had a good week. Good three albums. Looking forward to talking about it. Yeah. And Steve, so it was. Some of our listeners may know uh, we have our Tombola, our randomizer that picks out a theme on which we choose our albums of that particular episode. Uh, and our Tico Torres Tombola of topics and themes spat out Supernatural last week. Did you have much difficulty in choosing an album for this episode? No, not really. I've only got one thing to say to you two, though, and that's Elf. That's all I've got to say is Elf. I cannot believe anyone who doesn't know. These two Muppets are absolute D.O. diehards. And if ever there was an episode, I don't even know what they were, those three Elf albums are like, but... <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do because I listened to all of them last last week after the last episode, and that's why I didn't choose Elf. Oh, okay. Shoving that to one side, I yeah, had a little rummage around, didn't find too much of great interest but one band i do know a little bit about and i quite liked and based loosely on the fact that the word fates is something to do with supernatural mythological something or other um i went for fates warning and their 1991 release parallels which i know you boys have enjoyed listening to during the week very much very much and mark what about you how uh, what journey did you go on I, I thought about all sorts of stuff, and uh, there was just stuff that we'd list that bands we've already done and done quite recently, and what have you. And then I thought, and in the back of my mind, I remember hearing a couple of really good tunes on Metal for Mothers and uh, New Wave of British Heavy Metal '79 Revisited, which was compiled famously by Lars Ulrich, wasn't it? Um, and um, a, a band called White Spirit, and I thought. I'm going to go and have a listen. And I thought it was pretty good. Certainly good enough to share with you two. My view on it has changed over the week. But yeah, it was, I thought, spirit, you know. At least that's on point. Whereas Richard, <laughs> um, <laughs> you chose an album uh, that 
basically on the basis of an album cover by somebody being killed or something on a bed by a demon and it was rec- and the fact the album was recorded in a haunted castle I'd, i'm sorry I, I was bang on topic absolutely bang on topic what are you on about so yeah don't don't listen to them don't listen to them listen um so yeah i chose quite sensibly uh, an album by uh, by dear old black sabbath the album's sabbath bloody sabbath which uh, i'm sure a lot of you know what what are the th- the links to the supernatural? I think if you're fine, the album cover on the front and the back it pretty, pretty much portrays the same scene of a dying man uh, being watched over on the front cover by demons, on on the back cover by angels, all spirits. So yeah, now I'm bang on topic. And what's more, it was it was practiced and and written in a haunted castle. What more could you want? So before we get into all of the nuts and bolts of listening to these albums forensically track by track and then reviewing and rating and ranking them, we better have a listen to what they all sound like. So here's a little taste. So there you go. That's um, that's that's giving you a taste of what we've been listening to all week. Um, we always do these things in chronological order. So three albums to review, and um, yeah, they're poles apart timeline. These three, um, and the first of them is and a little bit a little bit of me always dies when we do Black Sabbath because it just means I've got a week of listening to Ozzy Osbourne. But I've actually I've actually not minded quite so much this week. Yeah. So Richard Sabbath, bloody Sabbath. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be really interesting to. Yeah, see if Mark feels the same because yeah, Aussie set Aussie sounds all right on this. I think he kind of hit hit his stride, and they I mean they all hit their stride after actually a worry amongst them all that uh, they were never going to again. I mean, burnt out after the tour of, of Volume Four, uh, holed up in I think Los Angeles or somewhere similar, and uh, no ideas flowing at all. So Volume Four was obviously their their fourth album, and. Uh, 
Eventually, they uh, decanted to Clearwell Castle, a haunted castle in England, and um, started to get some ideas for this, their fifth studio album. And I think quite a departure from their previous efforts. I mean, it's, it's judged by some to be their most creative. You know, they, they felt it was a bit of a new birth and a, a good feeling to do this. The time is 1973. Uh, the album was recorded in September, eventually, at uh, Morgan Studios after they'd laid down sort of all of the ideas and got it together in uh, the dungeons of Clearwell Castle. And it was released on the 1st of December, 1973 on the Vertigo label. Uh, Time-wise, it uh, runs to about 42 and a half minutes and uh, they produced it themselves uh, and uh, themselves are, well, you know, the classic lineup, obviously Osborne on vocals uh, and he also had a play with synthesizers on this. More stories about that later. Tony Iommi, not only on guitars, but on a wealth of other instruments. Uh, Geezer Butler on bass and bits and pieces as well and Bill Ward on drums they also attracted a few other people to help them with certain tracks including rick wakeman and well we'll come on to it in a minute uh, they nearly got someone else to drum on one of these tracks uh, but then decided against it it did pretty well in the charts uh, reached four in the uk and uh, 11 in the us uh, and uh, gold and platinum respectively in the com- those countries eventually uh, it's got eight tracks, four on each side, and they're as follows. So Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, National Acrobat, Fluff, and Sabracadabra on side one, and then Getting Yourself to Live, Who Are You Looking For Today, and Spiral Architect on side two. You see right I'm really pleased I chose this, actually, because we've reviewed only one, well, two two other Black Sabbath albums on this podcast, one with Ozzy, and Paranoid didn't fare that well. But I'm confident, actually, that this is going to fare a lot better than Paranoid. Is it better, in my view? Yes, absolutely. Is it their finest album with Ozzy? Probably, maybe. So, yeah, it's been really good. I've really enjoyed this. How have you two got on? Steve, have have you managed then with uh, Ozzy and the boys? I've loved it. I can answer all those questions for you, by the way. Yes, it's the best album they did with Ozzy. Yes, it'll shit on Paranoid all day long. And no, it's not as good as Heaven and Hell. There you go. I've answered those questions for you. Um, <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. I think it's I think it's been absolutely brilliant. It just takes you back to what the 
the, the origins of, of heavy metal are all about, don't they? And when, you know, I am E, Butler and Ward just get in that groove, there's nothing quite like it. Still, you know, it doesn't sound dated, you know, 40 years later or whatever, 50 years later, isn't it? Almost Christ. I have a problem yeah. with Ozzy's voice generally. Um, though, interestingly, I've not found it, I've not found it annoying at all. There's a, there's a couple of tracks on here that I just, I have no time for whatsoever. And Sabbath, even before that, they did, they did have a tendency to defer back to the late 60s and, and you know, with sort of psychedelia and, and a bit of, you know, progressive stuff. And they've kind of upped that a bit here. And, it, and where it, when it works, it works well. And there's a couple of tracks on here which just doesn't work for me at all. There are also four tracks on here that are bona fide metal classics. And put it this way, I shall be humming Sabbath, bloody Sabbath, rather than fluff, long into the night. <laughs> so, is it Black Sabbath's best album with Ozzy? Well, there are plenty of yeah, fan reviews that say it is, but I think what I what always makes me laugh about um, Black Sabbath, particularly the Ozzy era Black Sabbath, is even their fucking fans can't agree on what the best Black Sabbath album is. So there are some who go, it's Paranoid. There are some who will tell you it's Volume 4. There are a lot who will tell you it's Master of Reality. There's a whole community that are dedicated to Sabotage. And then there's Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. I think the only thing that Sabbath fans absolutely agree on is Never Say Die is Shit. (laughs) And, And I think that's about it. I think this is an amazing album compared to paranoid like you richard i think it's a better much better album than paranoid i think ozzy is absolutely right for it um and i haven't he hasn't grated on me at all this week which is unusual because even with the ozzy stuff that i really like for example diary of the madman but um blizzard of oz uh the ultimate sin to an extent even tracks on there albums that i genuinely love there are points where I just go, shut the fuck up, because you're getting on my tits. But this, no. Like you, Steve, I think they're, they're, it's flawed. There's, there are a couple of tracks that I can take or leave and probably leave. Um, I think the synthesizers, they, they're like kids in a toy shop with the synthesizers. They've kind of gone, wow, it's <laughs> a new instrument. We're going to use it a lot. So they've overcooked um, the the synthesizers throughout, I think. The other interesting thing I think about this album is as you listen to each track, each track gets progressively worse the longer it goes on. They're not bad. So I'm not saying it ever gets bad. But they they all start off, even Fluff, which I actually quite like, but that won't surprise you. They all start off really, really strong. And then it's almost like they run out of ideas a bit about how to finish them. And you kind of think, if you'd shaved 30, 45 seconds off them, maybe that would have ended up much stronger, complete form. But, yeah, that's, that's nitpicking. I've loved this album. Good. So, yes, eight tracks and four on each side and we start with the title track sabbath bloody sabbath and well probably one of the most recognizable riffs in metal don't you think super heavy and the riff that started the creative juices flowing iomi came up with this suddenly in the dungeons of clearwell castle and uh, a song and an album and i guess sabbath themselves were reborn 
I just think this is one of their best. It's such a classic. It, and the, the one thing about the songs on this album is that they're very, very well crafted. I mean, this one again, this sort of the light and the shade in this, the gentle pieces, and then it kicks back into this you know, ridiculously heavy riff. In terms of meaning, it's a bit of a backs-to-the-wall rant to everyone in the music industry. Not only do we get this this fantastic riff at the beginning, about two-thirds of the way through, then we get real heaviness, real, <laughs> real heaviness. There's detuned guitar and bass together. Just absolutely goes through you. Probably their heaviest riff they've ever written. Oh, I have no higher praise for this song. Absolutely brilliant. Slash called the ending the heaviest shit I ever heard in my life, didn't he? So, <laughs> and he's and he's not wrong. I mean, that's the point. What you're saying, Richard, you know, a riff is a riff is a riff, but the depth they get with that riff is just astonishing. Um, Geezer Butler said that, and I quote, when Tony came up with the riff to Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, it was almost like seeing your first child being born. <laughs> I think that's a lovely line. I don't mind these fiddly widdly bits in there. And later on in the album, some of them I find really quite annoying. Um, but yeah, like you, I think it works. And it does offset the sheer bloody weight of the thing when, when, they, when they crank it up. I just think it's one of the very, very best out and out heavy metal tracks. I love it. Yeah, I've got a lot to add, really. Everything you just said, um, I, I just think it's beautifully constructed because it, it it starts off as one thing and you think, oh, well, it's, yeah, that's Sabbath. And then it goes into something completely different before it drops back in again. And it's, it's just absolutely relentless fucking riff on this. And, you know, it puts a smile on your face. You can't help it. Amazing, amazing song. Okay, let's move on to track two, which is National Acrobat, a song about birth. We break into this almost, I've described it as sort of a walking riff, this sort of slow mid-paced riff, multiple layer guitars and bass. I mean, and listen to this through a really good system, a good pair of speakers. It's just really lovely, wide sound. Uh, another song inspired by the doomy environment of uh, Clearwell Castle. And this is such a catchy riff. Um, and it's classic Sabbath, again, in terms of the three of them, Butler, Ward, Iommi, in, in real sync. Another interesting thing about it towards the end, I mean, it, it then changes direction into a really sort of almost proggy, poppy outro. For me personally, not as strong as the opener, still, I'd really, really like this track. Um, the lyrics, I think, yeah, something I read this week, they're, they're supposedly the thoughts of an unborn child giving sort of advice to that child about how to live life seems quite deep to me, but you know, there, there you go. Um, that's right. Geezer Butler said, um, a national acrobat was just me thinking about who selects what sperm gets through to the egg. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> um, I really like this for a, a lot of this week. It was my favourite track on the album, and and I've come back to the title track now. I think, but again, it's it's a bit too long because it does tail off a bit, not in a bad way. You know, it's it's a great song front to back, but I would say that about every. Uh, I have said that about every song on the on the album. It, you know, it none of them. Well, with the exception perhaps of Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, but none of them really end as strongly as they start. But I, yeah, this is well up there for me. No, not me. This isn't one of my. Um, this isn't one of my four bona fide rock classics, unfortunately. Um, and it's a stupid name as well. It's Fairies Wear Boots, isn't it? It's a stupid fucking name. 
And it does go on too long. I absolutely echo what you say, Richard. And when they get that kind of, there's almost like a little Beatles guitar line into that after about five minutes. And I'm already a bit weary by that stage. <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfectly decent track, but it simply pales after what's gone before and, and, and there's better to come. It's really interesting you you mentioned the Beatles because I thought that it's almost you can almost sing Eleanor Rigby to that, mm, can't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well uh, let's move on to uh, Steve's favourite track of the album, um, which is track three. Um, <laughs> uh, this is Fluff. Fluff is an instrumental named after the uh, uh, British DJ uh, called Alan Freeman, Alan Fluff Freeman. Uh, an ode to him because he was one of the few DJs that actually played Black Sabbath's music on air, on, on the radio. Uh, it's a inst- an instrumental interlude, uh, lots of layered guitars, uh, and it's very pleasant. There's piano in here, there's harpsichord. It's one of these songs, if, if you'd play this to anybody, play this to anybody and say, right, who's this then? bottom of their list of every other band they'd have mentioned in the world would be Black Sabbath. Um, What I actually liked, coming back to Steve's point just now, about the first track and then the second track and then this track, my God, there's some real variety on here. And and hats off to them. I mean, talk about creativity, talk about, you know, letting the juices flow. That was obviously happening. And and as as a song, as a single song in its own right, this is a nice song. Steve can close this the debate about this particular track because because I'm, I know he's got a different view. But this is absolutely beautiful. I just love it. I think it's fantastic, and I don't mind it. I don't mind the fact that it's atypically Black Sabbath. I think it's it's just completely representative of a band that were kind of all right. They've got they had their problems. They had all the writers block. They wondered whether they're ever going to get this album out. But actually. For, for four albums before this, they were a band that were completely in a groove at the height of their writing powers. And I just think this is what they did. This And Steve, if you think back to episode three of this podcast, I was the one who said, I quite like Planet Caravan. Caravan. And yeah. you didn't. Yeah. So not surprising that I like it. I don't I don't dislike this. There's the precious little to dislike about it. It's, um, it just leaves me a bit cold. This is... Chigley to Laguna Sunrise's Camberwick Green, isn't it? It's just fucking kids TV. It's um, I, I'm, there's an apocryphal story, isn't there? That um, this was the song that Tony Iommi had playing while he was walking down the aisle for his first marriage, and apparently the tape malfunctioned, and so did his marriage. I don't know how much yes. truth was in that. It's time to it's time to bring out the word. It's inoffensive. Yeah, I forgot to say. I mean, it, 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 I mean, if anyone wants to understand sort of what the melody on this, just think of the Christmas song "Silver Bells," and uh, you won't be uh, you won't be too far away from it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but not the Twisted Sister version. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the last track on side one, uh, which is "Sabra Cadabra." Um, we're back in the groove, much more upbeat tempo. Real sixties vibe, you know, a bit of a love song, I suppose, from uh, from Black Sabbath. Um, I mean, another hyper recognisable riff, obviously famously covered by Metallica on on Garage Inc. Uh, and uh, I mean, brilliant bass work. Um, I mean, there's piano in here, almost boogie woogie. Uh, the synthesizer provided by Rick Wakeman, and this is the song. So this is the song where John Bonham visited them. 
uh, in the studio whilst they were recording this. And uh, they toyed with the idea of him actually playing drums on this track, then decided that it would upset the flow of the album, which I completely agree with. But boy, I'd have loved to have heard it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, as a song, I'm, it's such a catchy riff. Really good finish to the side. Sabracadabra. Steve? Well, I love it. Yeah, this is this is number two on the list of four. I think it's great. Six odd minutes long, isn't it? And given what we know about Sabbath at this period, you know there's some interesting stuff coming in. Um, the piano stuff and the sort of psychedelia and the synths. And is it Rick Waitman? Has he turned up in this yeah. one with his mini yeah. moog? But it gets really groovy and funky and heavy simultaneously. That's a great trick to pull off. Um, I love it. I really, really, in the end, it's kind of like there's almost a kind of congregational feel to it. I think it's brilliant. Well, I think it was Geezer Butler. Uh, I think this this quote is attributed to Butler. He said, one day at Morgan Studios, when Rick Wakeman seemed even more bored than usual, I asked him if he'd like to come over to Studio 4 and hear some of our new tracks. I remember playing the melody of Sabra Cadabra to him on my ARP2600 synthesizer. There I was, murdering this fucking riff with one grubby finger going, with Rick watching me. And when I finally stopped, Rick just went, Hmm, maybe it would sound better like this. Leaned over the keyboard and went diddly 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 duh. His fingers moved so fast, I swear you couldn't see the fucking things. I asked him right then if he'd play on the album, and he said he'd love to as long as we paid him the, his usual fee. How much, I asked. He said, two pints of director's best. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. What a lovely story. <laughs> yeah. Great song. Great, great song. Brilliant. Okay, let's flip it over then. Side two and the fifth track on the album is Killing Yourself to Live, written by Butler apparently when he was in hospital with drinking problems. He had, uh, well, certainly kidney problems, if not kidney failure. F- for me, not so memorable. And I feel they were borrowing a bit on this. I don't know if you two got this. The, the, so the, the middle section felt like just a little bit of a ripoff of War Pigs. And then they get into a sort of psychedelic second half, very echoey guitar solo. And then there's a bit of a gallop at the end, which for me was reminiscent of Fairies Wear Boots. Um, but apparently this is Kirk Hammett's favourite Sabbath song. Mm. Well, I can, I can understand that. I, I agree with you. It's not as original, is it? It's not as pure Sabbath as, as the rest of the album or the first side of the album is. But there's quite a lot going on in it. I can see why this would appeal to someone like Hammett. It's quite challenging. And also, there is a bit of the old Metallica in this as well. Mm. I really like this track. I think it's a great side to open, actually. And I think Ozzy is, is brilliant on this track. I really do. While I was doing my research, I noticed that our good friends Anal Cunt had done a version of this as well. <laughs> and they um, and they did it in 3 minutes 50. And I think Sabbath take 5.40. So, um, and, of course, they actually have a lead vocalist who is worse than Ozzy, which is their other mm. claim to fame, isn't it? Other, aside from that, it's a good cover. All right. So, um, yeah, talk about creative. Ozzy bought a synthesizer and didn't really know how to use it. Um, I'd never have guessed. But got fairly <laughs> high one night and had, a, and had a, t- a reel-to-reel tape. And, well, Who Are You? Track six was born. For anybody who hasn't heard this before, I mean, the closest I can think about is take Being Boiled by Human League and drag it back into the early 70s, and you've more or less got what Who Are You is about. Ridiculously un-Black Sabbath. But I quite like it. (laughs) I quite like it. It's catchy. It's a bit silly. It's a bit out there. 
certainly for 1973. And yeah, I, I don't mind this at all. Mm. Again, it's not a disaster. When they do slow, ponderous and heavy, they do it brilliantly. When they just do slow and ponderous, it's all a bit tame. To me, it's just a, it's just mm. a, just a misstep. And I was checking even planetmelotron.com only gave it a 1T rating, T for Tron, only gave it a 1T rating. So um, <laughs> even, even they weren't impressed. And, and, you know, I defer to them. They, yeah. they know they're Trons. I believe that's in, in reference to the number of notes that Ozzy is using on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just no. <laughs> just no. This track is a wash with synth. If you ignore all of that shit going on, there's nothing in this track no. at all. It's just a bass line and some drums. No, not for me. Right, let's move on to uh, track seven, which is Looking For Today. So, yeah, another sort of more straightforward start. That that I couldn't get, this riff, this galloping riff that starts reminds me of something. I don't. I, I just couldn't put my finger on it. Uh, the, the galloping drums and the, and the guitar over the top. Yeah, very drum-driven initially, um, but as we say, well, like so many tracks on this album, it just sort of changes direction it, you know, into sort of slow atmospheric breaks. So you've got Tony Iommi is playing flute on this one. I mean, it almost becomes a bit Jethro Tull in places later on, don't you think? But we know Tony Iommi plays the flute, don't we? Because we've reviewed it before. He played the flute on um, Sugar Rain by Quartz. That's right. I was racking my brains. I remember we'd done it before. We'd mentioned him before, having played the flute. I think he produced that album, didn't he? I love this. This is my fourth and final classic track, and it's made by the finish, which is just electric. It's probably the best finish on the album. Mark was talking about most of these tracks just gradually petering out. This is this is not one. This this improves as it goes on. Yeah, it's quite a crescendo at the end, isn't it? With yeah. an, and a lift in the in the vocals and the and the key, yeah. I guess. Yeah. All right, good. Well, let's move on to the closer then, track eight, which is Spiral Architect. Well, literally a song about all about life's experiences being added to DNA to create a unique individual. Unless I'm much mistaken, your DNA is unique uh, and it doesn't work like that, but never mind. Um, in terms of the song, um, it starts with a very gentle acoustic guitar. Then, I mean, it, then it, I don't know about you, it, it, it's sort of the, the way it built with the guitar, the bass, the drums, and um, I felt was in a style very reminiscent of The Who. Yes. you get that? Yeah, um, absolutely. And then um, we get quite a groovy vo- verse. I, I, I do like sort of Osborne's sort of nonchalant style that he just sort of, it was almost as if he's singing along to the music as opposed to over it on this. And then we get the strings. And then, I mean, there's this huge sort of, string orchestra comes in. I don't know if you guys read the story about the fact they had they they didn't have any music this orchestra, so Ozzy uh, hummed the melody and then waved his arms around like a mad conductor. And eventually, these musicians, these classically trained musicians, just picked it up and played it. I mean, it's, this is quite a complex finish again. Arrangement layers. I, I, I think this is a very good finish to uh, an enjoyable album. Me too. I think it's a really good number. Love it. Love it to bits. Butler said the lyrics came to him in a dream, didn't they? How 70s is that? Um, and he never wrote any better. Um, I love the string arrangements. I love the arrangements in general, the whole song. And it's a good number. It's, it's a nice song, which Ozzy doesn't ruin. I love the, the applause at the end. What a nice touch. Um, everything about it is just a really great way to, to finish an album. 
there's something Middle Eastern about it in the middle. There's a lovely little bit of phrasing that sort of takes you into a hot, sandy desert somewhere. Um, Ozzy tells the story of the lyrics. They didn't have any lyrics for it. And he said, I said to Butler, he said, I said, we need the lyrics to this song. Do you have them? He says, give me an hour. So I called him in an hour and he said, sorcerers of madness selling me their time, child of God sitting in the sun, giving peace of mind, fictional seduction on a black snow sky, sadness kills the Superman, even fathers cry. I said, are you reading these out of a fucking book? I was mind boggled. (laughs) All right. So there we go. That's uh, Sabbath, bloody Sabbath. A very enjoyable listen. Uh, I'm sure so many of you know it already, but we've had a blast listening to this one again. We better have some highs and lows. Yeah, I'll go first. Um, I I absolutely loved this album, front to back, um, and with with one exception, um, it it all scores well above seven, um, well, well above seven in most cases. So uh, my high is uh, the title track. I don't think I can look much beyond that. Um, And, yeah, who are you? I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. So that's my, well, not so high, put it that way. I echo everything Mark said. My high is the same as his, and, and my not so high is my low, um, which is who are you? Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's not not good, not good. Well, as I said, who are you? I guiltily uh, quite like after a week uh, listening to all this again. So despite it not being a bad song, I'll give Fluff my low, and I'm with both of you in terms of the title track. Just absolutely colossal, isn't it? Right, so there we go. That's the first of our trio of albums all around the supernatural theme. And we move into the 80s for our next one. Well, just. And the debut and, I think, Mark, only album from White Spirit. Opening album sleeve notes. Uh, Yeah, one and done. That's White Spirit. I always want to say White Sister. Anything that starts with white needs to be white sister. But this is white spirit at the vanguard of, well, the new wave of British heavy metal. So the tomes of history will tell you. But Steve and I had a brief exchange during the week where we both reached, I think, the same conclusion, which is that this owes more probably to 70s prog than it does to the new wave of British heavy metal or any sort of heavy metal, really. This is the band that gave us or gave Iron Maiden Yannick Gares uh, via Gillen, which I've forgotten until uh, you boys reminded me before we started recording this. Um, White Spirit, possibly the only band of any note formed in Hartlepool. Uh, this was re- released on September the 19th, 1980. It was recorded in five days at... Uh, Impulse Studios in Newcastle upon Tyne and produced by uh, Gillen bassist uh, John McCoy, big John McCoy, uh, produced this, which, uh, as we were discussing before we rolled the tape, may be why Yannick Gares ended up in Gillen. Um, the record itself, released on MCA, runs to a little over or a little under 41 minutes. It's the debut album, so there's nothing before it and, sadly, nothing after it because... Once this album was finished and the tour was done, so was the band. Um, Personnel on this, Bruce Ruff on lead vocals, Yannick Gare's guitar, Phil Brady on bass, Graham McCrallan, Crash Crallan, 
on drums and Malcolm Pearson on keyboards. Bruce Ruff, after this was done, would be replaced by a gentleman called Brian Howe, who would go on and replace Paul Rogers in um, Bad Company, and Howe also sang with Ted Nugent at one time as well. So, you know, uh, a couple of these boys did go on to bigger and better things. It's a seven-tracker, which is nice and compact, uh, has a ten-minute epic at the end, but side one, Midnight Chaser, Ride Sky, Red Skies, High Upon High, and Way of the King, and then flip it over and you get no reprieve, don't be fooled, and fool for the gods. enjoyed it I, I i was really smitten with this at the beginning of the week after i'd chosen it i woke up feeling sort of slightly smug uh last thursday morning thinking yeah that's a that is a good album that people are really going to enjoy me most of all and i have i have enjoyed it i've enjoyed it less and less as the week's gone on interestingly enough not that i don't think it's a good album i do but i've i have tired of it quite quickly I suspect that might be something to do with the production. You know, you don't record an album in five days and you know, end up with something that's particularly well polished, I don't think. Um, I suspect you know, this is a being done on a budget and on a shoestring, and it kind of sounds like it in places. But there are some massive highs on the album, a couple of kind of missteps. Um, I've enjoyed it. I suspect it will end up somewhere around the middle towards the lower half of the Hall of Fame, but I could be wrong. How did you boys like it? Well, not if, not if I'm marking it. It won't be halfway down. It'll be top 20. I'm, I'm really, really impressed. And unlike you, okay. I haven't um, – I haven't. it's not cooled with me at all um, as, as the week's gone on. I didn't know it. And, yeah, absolutely echo what you say about using the word sadly. There wasn't another one to come. Yeah, lazily hailed, weren't they, as a, as a Nwobam band? Almost certainly because they're from, as you, as you dismissively said, um, the, the northeast heartland um, of Nwobam, you know, bands like Tigers and Raven and Venom and whatever. But th- this just drips 70s prog for me, and, and it's fabulous because of that. It really does um, refer back to, you know, a, a previous decade as far as I'm concerned. But it's like they've managed to... And it's very clever. Um, they've kind of managed to meld together a few crumbs of you know modern rock um, with a whole load of early seventies prog. Um, added a superstar guitarist in, in Yannick Gers, and, and, I, and I genuinely mean that he's a brilliant, brilliant guitarist. And a, and a real nod or two to the kind of synth infused 
pop stuff that was in the charts at the time. So it's quite a cocktail, but full of great melodies and hooks and tunes and seven tracks on here, side one and side two, very different. I love side one. All the fun and loveliness is on side one. And there's some really, really great, it's so, so listenable. Side two is very serious. And then, uh, yeah, they almost drop a clangor at the end with Fool for Gods, um, which isn't great anyway. And (laughs) it's even worse when you've got to endure the whole fucking 10 minutes. Um, But that's not going to take away from my way. Unfortunately, it does. It's the last bloody track. It's what you go to bed with. But this is that's not going to distract from my enjoyment of this. I think it's been a a real treat. Yeah, I'd echo that. Not heard of them before at all. So it's been another lovely discovery. Yeah, I don't know. This whole Norbum or not, the whole point of the new wave was bringing some of the old stuff back and reinventing it. So I think in terms of early prog, there's definitely a bit, lots of purple influence in here, isn't there? Uh, but then, as, as you say, Steve, bringing in you know, various bits and pieces that were, were there at the time. Um, and we'll, we'll refer to them as we go through, but I can hear it on a couple of tracks. I mean, I mean there's one in particular. If you'd have played me that, I would have thought it was the Tigers of Pantang mm-hmm. you know, for a first album. There's some really, really interesting things going on in here. Uh, I think the songs are well-crafted. They're well-written. The, I mean, the production's okay. It's not as shit as, as we've had on a lot of other albums on the podcast. On the basis of this, I mean, there's a hell of a lot of promise there. Uh, and I think some quite mature songwriting and playing. Um, and, and they work well as a band together. So, yeah, it's been a good listen. The album kicks off uh, with a song that... Maybe this is why they were thought to be new wave of British heavy metal because it starts off with a very classic new wave of British heavy metal riff um, and the drums kind of crash in and it's galloping along quite nicely and you're thinking, yep, yeah, you know, I can hear Tigers of Antang here, I can hear Iron Maiden here. Um, and the vocal is is very typically sort of almost... Um, almost motorcycle man Saxon. So I understand why at this point in the album, you know, you might be thinking, well, it's, it's new wave British heavy metal, but then they start to do some really interesting stuff with melodies and harmonies and what have you. And, um, and it becomes so much more than just a new wave of British heavy metal song. And they, they kind of expand on that in terms of becoming more proggy on the next one, which is my, probably the highlight of the album for me. But, um, this is a great start. This is a great start. Yeah, as you say, it's proper, proper Norbum, isn't it? The, the little runs in the bridge, that's classic Tigers of Pantang. The riff reminds me of uh, Two Minutes to Midnight, which, of course, came out from Maiden four years after this. And then, yeah, so there's almost like a very John Lordy keyboard solo in the middle. Uh, so I, I think it's a cracking start. Yeah, when, when I put this on for the first time, I thought, hello, here we go. Steve? Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? When that first Lord, Lord-esque solo comes in, it just alters your perceptions of what's coming because you've had that, as you said, that lovely Nwobbin start and then bang, there's a little purple reference straight away. Um, it's brief, but that, that first keyboard, so it's brief, but it's very good. It's a fabulous track. It just bowls along. Um, don't mind Bruce Ruff's vocals at all. Don't know much about him. but And the other obvious 70s influence um, is that they had a golden opportunity to end this track after about three minutes. Um, but they decided, nah, fuck it. Let's um, let's pop a seriously long guitar solo in. 
um, against that powerhouse backbeat, the sort of thing that Bloodrock might have done, the sort of thing that Lucifer's friend might have done, the sort of thing that MC5, for fuck's sake, might have done. And, of course, exactly like Deep Purple would have done. And that's kind of what you're getting. And that's just in track one. You know, th- th- there's a embracing so many different genres within within one track. I think it's a brilliant start. Well, if we thought it was a brilliant start, then it's about to get better because track two is Red Skies. And I just think this is absolutely glorious this is this is everything that is good for me given that i'm a recent i've i've i think i've said this on previous episodes i have discovered that that i knew i was always rooted in the 70s i hadn't quite appreciated that i i i was a prog fan without knowing that i was a prog fan because this is i think just fantastic 70s prog red skies it's that just absolutely dripping with all of the stuff that you would expect um you know a, a classic 70s prog song to do it goes in all sorts of different directions and it's got the most beautiful beautifully crafted sort of chorus and harmony going on that just it's so smooth and so lovely and there are echoes of yes in there, but sort of not obviously fragile era yes, um, but elements of yes. There's elements of, of Uriah Heap in here. There's a bit of Lucifer's Friend in here. It's just brilliant. Track two, the highlight of the album for me. It's got a real lightness about it, hasn't it? Particularly in the in in the bridge. And I mean, borrowing from other stuff that was around at the time. I mean, there's almost like some what what is it like lighter new wave stuff. I mean, the bridge chorus was was reminding me of stuff like Joe Jackson, and I, I don't know. For me, not quite as good as the opener. Okay, Steve, I, I do like this track a lot. And for everything that you've said, there's just a couple of the keyboard settings that have just been set to a whiny, and, and I just find them slightly annoying. But then the chorus, as you said, Mark, is beautiful, and there's a fa- and it builds into a fabulous solo. I do wonder about Yannick Gares. Was he too good for them? Did he know his future was elsewhere? Is that the reason why the band folded? I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether you boys even can answer that question, but he's a great guitarist. And the solo in this is brilliant. Who knows? I mean, th- this band was kind of on its knees, really, by the time they'd finished recording and done the tour. You know, Ruff had been replaced. Um, Brian Howe never recorded a single thing with them, but they had the makings there. They had the makings there of a, you know, Brian Howe on vocals, Yannick Gears on guitar. You kind of think, well, where would that have gone? Because that that could only have been to a good place. But you know, then I guess if our if our detective theory is right, then John McCoy goes, "Hey, Yannick, do you want to come and play for Ian Gillen?" And you're and you're probably going to go, "Yeah, yeah, exactly." Of course you would. So anyway. Track three, high upon high. When it starts, you're thinking, hmm, it feels a bit like sort of something Tony Hart might have on Vision On. But then it gets going, and again, it's another big slice of 70s prog, you know, keyboards. Well, the keyboards kick the track off, but they never let up throughout it. And lyrically, I think it's quite good. I think the production on this particular track lets it down a bit. I think... Um, Ruff could have done with a bit of guidance on the vocals because it all feels a bit clunky. Uh, was that a laugh to sort of uh, in agreement or am I talking bollocks? I just think he sounds like Phil Oakey out of the Human League in this. I quite like it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I think this is better than Red Skies. I love High Upon High, and I love. And I'm sure I speak for Richard when I say that starts brilliant. It just reminds me of Asia. I love it. I don't mind. Yeah, I've got yeah. Prog yeah. jollyness, and they like a melody. You know that. But and then when the track pops into that opening keyboard, then you get just the real post Gabriel Genesis feel. Um, Tony Banks kind of solo. You know, it, it could have sat somewhere on Trick of the Tail, or, or actually probably something like Duke. Actually, which is a bit later. Mm. Um, and then it came to me that the middle Pearson keyboard solo was actually nicked by Howard Jones and used as the foundation for all his chart hits. <laughs> Human League, Howard Jones. Yeah. Before you know it, the Eurythmics will be here and we can all have a party. Yeah. Well, it has. It's got this lovely, uplifting energy, uh, this song, hasn't it? I'm in agreement with Mark that I think the vocals are flat, and actually bring the song down. We need to move on. Where the Kings ends the side. And, yeah, I mean, I I find this sort of slightly disposable. Um, I'm not overly keen on it. it. I find it quite repetitive. It's got a decent enough riff going on, I suppose, Yannick Gares again. Um, but I find it all a bit sort of whiny, and the vocals are complaining and uh, mm-hmm. and. They get on my tits a bit, if I'm being honest. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. No, I've, I've found this one just a little bit too straightforward. It's the heaviest of the songs today, I think, but not not particularly heavy, is it? But it's a little bit more straightforward, certainly the first half of the song anyway. Um, and then so you're waiting for you know the, the, the big Malcolm Pearson appearance, and actually all you get is just a few weird synth noises, and then he kind of clears the floor for that riff again, which is a, which is a really decent riff. I, I do like it. I, I like a drawn-out outro probably more than most men, but um, this one's not amazing. But the track's okay. Yeah, it's okay. That, 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 I think that's that's where I got to. It's okay. But it doesn't appear to have a point to it. There's no focal – there's no focus to the track. I think that's the problem I have. Richard, what do you reckon? Yeah, no, a lot to add. agree with everything you've said. So uh, let's turn this over and uh, go to – well, it's got a, a, an interesting – little sort of drum shuffle intro. And this is where I think you really do hear Tiger's Pantang. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> this this could be on any one of the Tiger's first three albums. Yep. Um, yep. I mean, it's gangland. It's, um, you know, it's everything that, that Tiger's were brilliant at. And for that reason, I love this track. <laughs> I, I don't need to say any more than that. It's, listen, if you know early Tiger's Pantang, this is what this is, and it's and it's glorious. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I guess this would, be, would have been early Tigers, but I mean, Rough sounds like John Deverell on on yeah, Spellbound on this, doesn't he? Yeah. So no reprieve uh, goes into "Don't Be Fooled," which uh, I think Deep Purple have turned up in the studio, <laughs> haven't they? Because uh, this is this is smoke on the water. I think that's where that's where I am. I don't know about you two. Yeah, I've got yeah my rearrange the chords of smoke on the water and come up with another riff. Is <laughs> uh, you know if you're going to borrow from anything, then deep purple smoke on the water is not a bad thing uh, to borrow from. Uh, it, it picks up. It's it's a bit quicker than smoke on the water in the end. Uh, I quite like this. It's I think it's brilliant. <laughs> I really like this. I really like don't be fooled. Um, they lay on a back, they can do a backbeat, you know, they've got a rhythm section in there. Love Gers, uh solo. Pearson has a couple of goes on his own of solos. 
the second one over that back line just plays the track out and it's just magnificent i you know i didn't like the um the, the outro to way of the kings i thought was a bit iffy this one's brilliant anyway we move on to track seven the final track of the album and probably the point at which you know i'm thinking at three and a half four minutes um four for gods would probably be quite a decent way to finish the album as it is it is 10 plus minutes and this is interesting but not necessarily in a good way they do take the song in sort of different directions break it down build it back um there's a lot of kind of swirling soaring keyboards in it well you know we shouldn't be surprised. There's been a lot of swirling, soaring keyboards across most of the album from Mr. Pearson. And, you know, by and large, they've been pretty good. That They dominate this again. I just I just don't think... It's almost like it's a rambling mess in places. And I just think with a bit more thought, a bit more structure, condense it down a bit and make it tight and it would have been fine, but it's not. Yeah, n- never at any stage do I say, thank the Lord, this is 10 minutes long. No, um, it's almost the same musical theme running through it, and they just sort of kind of you know, rearrange it a little bit here, there, and everywhere. I mean, I say it's ten minutes. The first two minutes are just a almost like a pointless prelude, aren't they? Um, what to say? It's a genuinely decent effort, and you know, at something super big and and elaborate, and uh, chapeau for for trying. But it just um, it's just too long. There's some nice. There's a, there's an interesting. There's a really interesting kind of conversation, almost um, keep talking style off the division bell. I don't know. Listen, I'm looking for things that are, that are, that are slightly interesting in this track because there's a lot of it. Um, and it's, you know, bottom line is it's okay. I like the maiden gallop at the end, but yeah, it's, mm-hmm. well, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Don't, don't think I haven't noticed that you made a voluntary reference to Pink Floyd there. Um, <laughs> Richard? Yeah, that's why Steve couldn't care for the first two minutes because it was very Pink Floyd-y, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I've written things like um, tried hard. Steve said good attempt. I mean, I think they set off with the best of intentions. Yeah. I, and I've continued to try with this. Really tried hard all week and it's still not got there. The guitar's very lost in this as well. It would have been nicer to, for that to be more more prominent. And there's some nice dual work between the guitar and organ again. But yeah, it's it doesn't work, and not to work for ten minutes gets a bit tiring. Um, highs and lows, uh, Steve. Let's start with you. Um, so my low is full for the gods, um, and my high. I've given them the same score, but I do like the. I, I just think Midnight Chaser, such a statement, such a good statement. Richard, yeah. Ditto those. Um, best song at the start, weakest at the end. Well, it's a hat trick for Four for Gods because uh, that's Milo too. But it, it was, has been, probably always will be Red Skies for me uh, as as the high. So there you go. That is White Spirit from 1980. Uh, we've we shall see in due course where that ends up in the big list. You know, that's two really good albums down um, from the three that we were listening to this week. It's time to move on to the third. And we fast forward 11 long years to the eve of grunge and a question, which is, if this album had come out three years before, would it have been a monster album in a way that perhaps it wasn't in 1991? Steve, you can elaborate on the merits of 
Fates Warnings Parallels. Opening album sleeve notes. Well, if I'm honest, Mark, I can't answer that question. Um, I'm sure I could give it some thought, but I can't be asked. I went for Parallels, and the reason I went for Parallels is very simple. On the lazy, slightly lazy grounds that three of the tracks on here I knew fairly well from a, from a prog metal playlist that I have on Spotify. Um, so let me make it crystal clear. I'm not a Fates Warning fan. Love this album. Discovered them by accident when I was doing a journey through Dream Theater with my oldest son. Just thought I'd go back and have a look at the Holy Trinity, what they call the Holy Trinity of, of prog metal, um, which is you know Dream Theater, Queen's Reich, and Fates Warning. Definitely, I think they're definitely easy to warm to once they've binned their, um, well, I've called him a King Diamond, sound like John Arch after three albums, and Ray Alder, who's the uh, singer on this, are taking the mic. There are points on parallels when Old, Older and Jeff Tate just sound like they were separated at birth, um, which some may see as a good thing, others may not. Um, just a little bit about Face Warning. Formed in Connecticut in 82, guitarist Jim Mateus and bass player Jim DiBiase are the only members of the original quintet, um, still on board by the time of Parallels, which was nine years after formation. I was going to say they were never a straight-ahead rock band, although they, they, they did their first album, Night on Brocken, was kind of, kind of maidenish. Um, but they were always a bit more thoughtful and clever than that. And they really progged out when they appointed first older after three albums. But crucially, I think that everyone says that the determining factor was when they um, employed drummer Mark Zonder, who seemed to click better with songwriter Matthias. Um, and they started writing this more prog style. So by the time we get to Parallels, um, which is album six, Fate's Warning are pretty much on their game. So a few things about the album. Um, October 29, 1991, it was released. On the Metal Blade label, they, um, this one's 4527 long, produced by Terry Brown of Rush fame. Um, and he does a great job on this, absolutely brilliant job. The studio is Metalworks in Mississauga, Toronto. Um, previous album was Perfect Symmetry in 89. The next album was Inside Out in 94. The personnel, Ray Older on vocals, Jim Mateus on guitars, Frank Arresti on um, rhythm guitar, Joe DiBiase on bass and Mark Zonda on drums. Don't know about the chart position. It did make number 20 in the Billboard Heat Seekers, um, which was a kind of chart that the bill Billboard had created in the early 90s. That's all I know about that. I don't know whether the 20s any good or not. Sounds all right. Um, all songs are written by um, Jim Mateus, and there are eight of them. So, yes, parallels. Prog, definitely, um, but with a lot of commercial accessibility in amongst the sort of, you know, the inevitable time changes. Um, and a lot, on, a, a lot of the prog on here is quite subtle. Um, song structures aren't, you know, massively adventurous, um, but there's certainly enough variety and cleverness to keep any sort of new prog metal fan, if that's what you want, well, indeed any prog fan um, of whatever vintage happy. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's ever such a good blend as a whole. I think it's a really, really solid piece of work. Richard, you must, you, you must love it. Yes, I I didn't. I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know too much Fate's Warning. So this was a, a nice surprise when you chose it. And yeah, yeah, the parallels between <laughs> yeah, this and Queensryche and, and Dream Theatre. I mean, you could, you could almost interchange some of the personnel of these three bands, couldn't you? As an album, it's still like these kinds of albums. I, I need to give it more listens. It's, it changes by the day in terms of stuff that really hooks in there. There were a, a couple of the songs, instant hooks, absolute instant hooks. Um, some of the rest I'm still getting used to. But as a listening uh, experience, it's been really, really enjoyable. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Good. Mark? Um, well, I mean, 
it's Queensryche, but with different clothes on, really, um, which is not a bad thing at all. I've really enjoyed it. I, I think it's it's really good. I was so taken by the album that I decided that what I really ought to do is listen to some more of their stuff for context. I, I vaguely remember having Awaken the Guardians in my record collection at one point, and it's not in my record collection anymore, and I'm not entirely sure what's happened to it. I haven't had it for a while. I don't think I ever played it, or if I did, it didn't speak to me. Anyway, I went back and I listened to at least a little bit of all of the albums that came before and a little bit of the album that came afterwards. But the one that I played in its entirety was Night on Brocken from 1984. And I have to say, I prefer Night on Brocken to this. Um, I think this is much more polished, much more accomplished, um, much more layered. It's got all of that kind of stuff going on that you would expect from a band that is you know, ploughing the same water as Dream Theatre and and Queensryche. But I quite like the power metal approach that they, they had in the early mid-80s, uh, mid to late 80s, which put me in mind of sort of, you know, they were still a progressive metal band in the, in the same way that Sabotage are a progressive metal band. So, but they were more Sabotage than Queensryche back in the, in the mid-80s, as far as I can tell. I've really enjoyed this. I think my only... My only slight criticism of it is it's been difficult to tell some of the tracks apart from time to time. And there has been a, what seems to be, even for my new ears to this band, a an almost calculated commercial step that they've taken, which sort of undermines the purity of what they're setting out to do. Maybe, I don't know. Um, it, it's just an observation rather than a criticism. But you know, I've enjoyed it. Things been good. Okay, so as I say, there are eight tracks on parallels, four on each side. Side one has uh, "Leave the Past Behind, Life in Still Water," "Eye to Eye," and "The Eleventh Hour." And on side two, "Point of View," we only say goodbye. Don't follow me, and the road goes on forever. track is leave the past behind um nice atmospheric intro which is quite commonplace on this album ray older crooning over the top there's a great riff in here which does glue it all together older does sing with plenty of passions very emotional singer and um i do like that again like jeff tay i guess but it's from about four minutes on cued in by mateo solo where we absolutely strike gold back into a riff older singing right on top but so controlled 
And then after the thunder, it just sort of drifts progly out. I think it's a top, top opener. I really do. Yeah, the opening guitars are so Queensryche, aren't they? Um, mm. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it could have been Portnoy and drums with some of the stuff that's going on there. It's, it's a long opener, isn't it? I think it could have maybe been a, a bit shorter, uh, but I like the vocals. I, I love that build into the main riff. Arrangement on this is really good, uh, as as it actually the arrangements are throughout. Um, and it's yeah, it's a good start. I mean, like like uh, with with White Spirit, I, I I put this on and I was very very happy. The opening riff to this, or the riff to this, reminds me a lot of Another Rainy Night from Empire. Mm -hmm. um, it's really, really close to that. What I really like about this, and I don't know whether you boys have noticed this in this song, I'm sure you have, but I like the suspended ar arpeggios. I think <laughs> they really work well. Uh, <laughs> oh, Is this going to go on? No. Go on for each track? <laughs> no, I don't. No. Um, but actually, I mean, joking aside, joking aside, those broken chords, that circular broken chord structure is really quite compelling and addictive because you want it to complete. So when it doesn't, it, you just keep listening for the completion of the chord progression. It's really effective. Um, so, yeah, no, I like, I like the suspended arpeggios. <laughs> um, Life in Still Water is track two. You know, just has some just delicious little elements to it. Mark Zonder's drumming is the absolute bollocks. It just is. Um, and, and and like Leave the Past Behind, there's a Matea solo on here to introduce the finish where Alder's voice is super. Backing vocals by soon-to-be Dream Theatre vocalist James Labrie. Yeah, Zonder's drumming, Richard. It's all about just... He dictates everything, doesn't he? It's one thing that brings these three bands together with Queensryche and with, with Dream Theatre, uh, the, this style of drumming. Yeah, it, it, is, it is the glue and it's, it's, it's not just keeping a beat. Uh, the echoes, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll shut up before I, I send you both to sleep. But yeah, there is, a, there is a style here. There is a drumming style in all of these three bands. And I suppose, yeah, it's not surprising um, if they, they pulled him in to give them another dimension. I, I really, really like this track. Um, I think it's, for me, stronger than the opener. I am really, really trying hard, though, to forget how similar this sounds to the thin line off of Empire. Uh, it, you know, it came a year later. Ooh, it's, it's just a bit close in the riffs, <laughs> in the accents, in the bass and drums punctuating below. And then in the huge lift for the for the chorus, but putting that to one side as a song, really like it. I'm struggling to to forget that he sounds identical to Jeff Tate. I just that's that's it for me. I agree. It, it is the thin line. It is Jeff Tate. It is Queensrÿche. There's no getting away from it. We can tiptoe yeah. around it, but the, and and they they hate the the kind of the comparison to to Queensrÿche. You know. They are very. They have been described by more than one source, Queensrÿche, as the nemesis of Fate's Warning. So, you know, there's not a lot of artistic love lost. I, I don't, don't know how the bands get on, but artistically, they want to be very different. But unfortunately, they're not. This is like listening to Empire. Well, you might think this is impossible to achieve, but 
older does actually sound even more Jeff Tate on another track to come yet, but we'll come to that in uh, in a little bit. In a little bit, because, <laughs> because first things first, we have um, eye to eye, and yeah, here's something for the hard rock fan. Really, this is this is a bit more straightaway rock riff into a nice verse, and the chorus is certainly um, a tad more conventional. I think it just lacks the warmth of the first two tracks for me. I, th- I referenced this earlier. This feels completely constructed to be a commercial hmm. hit. I'm like you. I, it does. It lacks the warmth of the two that have gone before. Yeah, I, I think was no doubt they would have put all of their heart and soul into creating these songs. This one doesn't grab me emotionally. It's obviously really clever, really well crafted, very well engineered, but it doesn't grab you or make your heart pump faster or so despite what they were trying at the other end as a song whilst there's some very nice layers there's a catchy chorus i like the harmonies but it doesn't do much for me Mm. side one finishes with the 11th hour and i have read on many many forums fate's warning fans say this is um the best song they ever did Mm -hmm. um i can't comment on that but i can say it's very very good um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> very, very, very good from its sort of haunting start with Alder's fragile vocals um, against a really gorgeous guitar line. And then it builds. And that's when Jeff Tate pops in to help out. Seriously, it's, it's like for life doesn't do it, doesn't do it justice. The song though just gallops away um, with missed notes galore and ghost bits and drums and bass not following any rule books and it's all brought home with that delightful opening guitar line it really is beautiful um eight odd minutes long doesn't feel like it to me mm. i think it's fantastic motorhead can play entire shows in the time it takes them to get going. <laughs> yeah I, I agree with you but my god you have to wait for it don't you fucking hell it takes an age to get going <laughs> and you're right this is this is more jeff tate than jeff tate isn't it it's terrifyingly similar. I, I think this is absolutely brilliant. That quiet atmospheric start, when those chords kick in, this grabs you. This absolutely grabs you. I love how it takes off and then it drops again and it kicks in again. Tr- a track of the album. This is colossal. Love it to bits. Yeah, it's, it's, it is beautiful and brilliant and breathtaking and, and any other B words other than bollocks. But we have to turn it over. We now hit the trio of tracks that are so well known to me because these are the ones that I culled for my um, for that playlist many, many years ago. So point of view, we only say goodbye and don't follow me. So I love all these, especially points of view. Um, it's that mean guitar line sort of underpinning a, a really mean chorus. It kind of contrasts with the, there's an almost poppiness about the, um, about the, the verse structure. Drumming again is just absolutely sensational. Fade out to die for. Both guitars going at it. Bass raging. Great chorus. I could go on and on. Yeah. <laughs> but again, you know, is this Jet City Woman? Rainy Night Without You? Well, yeah. anyway, let's put those to one side. Who influenced whose? It, it's, uh, yeah, like this. Like this a lot. So what do you think of We Only Say Goodbye then? What do I think of Only um, This is their silent lucidity, isn't it? If we're going to keep, you know, keep referring to empire um i think this just shows their breadth as musicians doesn't it? i think this is glorious everything going on in it 
and it's it's all kind of heartfelt and uh, and there's a sense of melancholy about it as well, uh, but also a sense of hope. It's a really strange track in 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 that it kind of goes all over the place. Right. There's always yeah. that s- stuff keeping it together yeah. and moving forward, and I love it. I think I think this is probably my highlight of the album. Okay, Richard. Yeah, this this has grown on me. I think a bit bit more commercial, but the the melodies and the vocal, the 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 size of the chorus, uh, it's so hooky. Yeah, no, it is great, and uh, to me, it's it's all about the the pain and the emotion in in Ray Alder's voice as well. I mean, you know, he could he could sing Whiplash and reduce a man to tears, couldn't he? That's 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 what I get from him. It's just such a feeling. Love it. And yeah, so the other, the other song from my playlist is uh, "Don't Follow Me." You know, if we only say goodbye was a kind of mellower moment in in degrees, and this certainly isn't. This is the energy's back. Nothing wrong with this at all. Maybe, arguably, just lacks the interest of some of the other tracks on here. But the guitar solos, fantastic, um, and the out is is excellent. It's very slick. Um, but the whole album's pretty slick. Yeah, no, I, I like. It's not a high, not a massively high score of this, but I do like it. Yeah, I, th- this is one that if you'd asked me to hum it, I couldn't do it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, yeah, this doesn't grab me as much as the, as the others. I was trying to think why. I think there's an absence of any kind of hooky riff on it. Hmm. There's a melody going on and then lots of chords and stuff underneath, but they're, they're, I don't think there's anything else to really, really grab you. It's not a bad track. But, no, no. Yeah. Anyway, we sign off with... The song goes on forever. Sorry, the road goes on forever. Um, <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> oh, dear. In the style of um, of the 11th hour, it's a dreamy starter using both guitars. Though, if I'm honest, I'm not actually that bothered about the tunes throughout the song. find it all quite flat. Picks up a bit. Yeah, the open just doesn't get to me at all kind of almost this is one of those tracks which almost washes over me i'm uh, as i'm listening to it now i'm trying to remember where it goes and i've listened to it quite a lot this week it's, it's not the strongest thing on it oddly enough I, pref- I i actually prefer this to don't follow me um marginally but i think i think the two for me the two weakest songs are at the end yeah it's okay it's all right it's a perfectly good song yeah that's where i am with it as well richard you got you got nicer things to say about it no, I think I'm there with with both of you. This is one I think, given more time. Dot dot yeah. dot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's certainly a song that I've enjoyed more when I've given it my absolute full and undivided attention, because there's some really nice dual guitar work in the second half, uh, really well layered again. I, I think this is worth some some proper listening time. Yeah, it's a bit like S M in that sense, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. Oh, <laughs> mm. <laughs> they weave their way in. Um, so yeah, that's parallels, highs and lows. What have we got? Right. So my low is "Don't Follow Me," and my high, as you will have heard earlier, is the eleventh hour. What an absolute belter! Mm. Um. Don't follow me as the low, and uh, where did I get to? We only say goodbye uh, was my high. Okay, so eye to eye is my weakness, weak link, and yeah, but it will always be point of view for me. That's that's my high. 
Good. So it'll be interesting to see how parallels are the first Fates Warning album we've done for um, for the Enter Sad Men podcast. Interesting to see how it stacks up in the Hall of Fame. Then what we'll find out is if we go and mark it and mark the other two and um, come back in a bit and we'll see how they how they get on. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. So the scores are in. And how do we do this evening then on our episode 60? All about the supernatural. Well, Black Sabbath's Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath was up first. And the scores came in as follows. Steve gave it a 7.43, Mark an 8.17, and me a 7.62. And that gave Sabbath, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, an overall of 7.74. Mark, how about White Spirit? Oh, they did um, really well, didn't they? Um, Steve gave that a 7.64. Richard, you gave it a 7.14. And, well, Steve and I weren't far apart at all because I gave it a 7.68. So, uh, yeah, I mean, um, virtually identical scores there. So, yeah, pretty good showing. Uh, Steve, Fate's Warning. Yeah, none of us very far apart with um, Parallels. Who's the lowest? Richard, you gave it 7.56, Mark 7.72, me 7.81 for a sum total of 7.7 on the money. There you go. Those are the scores for these three albums. All we need to do now is find out where they are housed in the uh, in the Hall of Fame. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. So there we go. We're in the Hall of Fame. Three albums inserted in episode 60. And you're immediately thinking... They're quite good scores, aren't they? They're quite good scores. These will be these will be top forty contenders straight away. But here's the truth, kids: White Spirit are in at number ninety with their score of seven point four nine. Don't forget, we've got one hundred and eighty of these beasts in our um, in our league table of excellence right now. So yeah, White Spirit at ninety, halfway down with a score of pretty much seven point five. They're the standards that are being set. A um, bit further up, number 57, Parallels, Face Warning, 7.7. Um, and the pick of the three this, uh, on this episode, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, no surprise, at 7.74. In at number 52, what's your thoughts? Um, well, that's pretty much where I expected it to be, to be honest, where I expected them to be. Um, I said, didn't I, at the beginning that I thought White Spirit might be sort of somewhere around the middle. Well, there you are. They're at number 90. So I was spot on, and I'm feeling quite smug about that. Um, (laughs) Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Um, Well, I love that album, and way, way more than I was expecting to love it. I'm surprised it's as low as it is, given how we all felt about it, um, at 50, whatever it is. Um, And Parallels, well, um, I shall be going out of my way to discover more of Fakes Warning. So I, I, I think that's been a really good week, really good week. And Paranoid is down at 146, for anyone who's interested. That confirms that point. Yes, it does. And and I have to say that I'm, I, I don't know, but I think there will be some Black Sabbath fans hanging their heads in their hands going, what do these clowns know? Paranoid down at 100 and whatever, 146. No, 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 no. But I'm afraid it is, chaps. I'm afraid it is. You Sabbath fans, yeah, you know, there are some stonking tracks on that album, but... It's not consistent. It's not consistent. And that's why it is where it is. So listen, that's done. That's um, episode 60, done and dusted. We've had fun doing it. Hope you've had fun listening. And um, we'll do it all again next time. All the best. Cheers. 
All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.